Do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. Welcome, everybody, once again to another episode of I Love Data Centers. This is Sean Terrio, your host, and I am stoked to have with me here Chris Downey with Flexential. Uh, many of you probably know Chris and have heard his name at very least. He is a very active uh, personality in the industry, especially on social media. Um, and has a very extensive track record and history in the data center industry. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Great to be here. Forward to the conversation. So one of the things that I've, I've got a lot of questions for you, um, given the background that you have in and around our space and the different transactions you've been a part of and the evolution of the industry that you've been uh, a part of over the years. But before we dig into the nuts and bolts of your career, I'd love to figure out how did you get into tech? Like, were you playing around with computers as a kid? Uh, how, was it something that you picked up in college? You know, what was your major in college? What, how did you get into and around tech growing up? Yeah, well, um, I guess uh, as I was going through high school and, and into college, I, I developed an interest around really communications and entertainment. Um, you know, as I thought about things that, uh, you know, would be resilient through good times and bad, um, people are always, uh, looking to communicate and always looking to be, uh, entertained. So I guess I really didn't, uh, um, start applying that professionally until, uh, I started, got, got to, got to late college and, um, I wasn't necessarily trained, um, from a technical perspective through college to be in it, I was a history major. So, you know, in a lot of ways just, you know, was gaining perspective about, about things that have happened in history and learning how to write and, and, uh, you know, learning how to sort of apply logic to, um, to, to different circumstances, uh, which I think you gain the benefit of studying history. But, um, you know, I, after college, I, my first, uh, career was as an investment banker. And so, um, I had a bit of a, a ability to sort of get involved with things that I was interested in. And so in those early investment banking days, you know, I started focusing on communications, entertainment, and obviously communications led to, you know, all things uh, around internet infrastructure over the longer term. So that's, I guess that's, that's the early genesis of, of my interest in this area. Yeah, that's, 
Um, not a not a unique story. Ironically enough, most of the people in our space had you know music backgrounds <laughs> or or history majors or or the like, and they didn't really get into computer science and whatnot until after after college, uh, which I think is pretty interesting because many assume that you have to be a computer science major in order to work in our space and work in our industry, but that's definitely not the case. Um, and it's I think just a good good thing for people to know who are listening that uh, you don't have to be into computers in order to, to work here. Um, however, it could, I could say knowing the language of uh, computers and, and our industry is definitely helpful. But um, So when you were doing those investment banking gigs, I guess, how did you even come across the industry? How did you even know that telecom and data centers were something unique and different and worth, worth attention? Uh, I guess maybe it was... Uh just by chance to a certain degree. Um, although I would, uh, there were always various different things to work on as a, as a young analyst in investment banking and, and you not, you necessarily got your choice. You, you typically got assigned to things, but you know, I got involved with, um, uh, with things that, uh, tended to be in and around uh, telecom. Um, and then also like, uh, radio and, and entertainment type of, um, um, Venues, I guess, if you will, because um, some of it was not just, uh, um, you know, entertainment. Um, uh, more broadly speaking, some of it was specifically related to entertainment venues, stuff like that. But, but anyway, uh, as I got more and more involved in in projects um, around communications, in particular, it became a bit of a specialty of mine. And and um, as I became a bit more tenured in my investment banking career, I was I did investment banking for about ten years. So it was Super long. Um, I started to focus on things around um, the CLEC industry, which you know I'm not exactly sure uh, whether your audience will necessarily be familiar with the acronym because it it was a, pretty hot for a while, but then uh, quickly faded away in the whole telecom debacle in the late uh, late 90s. But um, you know, CLECs were new telecommunications companies that were afforded the opportunity to compete with the big telecommunications companies as a result of deregulation and and um and so there was a whole lot of companies being created and uh that were all just trying to get a, a little piece of the pie that the that the larger telecom companies had had for a very long time and so you know I became a bit of an expert around that uh, if you will as far as an an investment banker can be an expert on anything I guess um and spent a ton of time just Understanding the business model, raising, uh, trying to raise private equity and debt capital around um, those things, and, and there was a tremendous amount of opportunity to do that um, in in the nineties. Um, you know, obviously that changed thereafter, but um, you know that all gave me the training to understand the business model, how it worked, where it fit, um, who was interested in investing in it, and um, as, as you probably well know, you know everything around. Telecom and internet infrastructure, in particular, is 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 pretty capital intensive. So um, there was just a, a lot of work to be done to to find the capital and, and ultimately, you know, help companies put it to work. And you, I see you were at Broad Street during the uh, the fun 2000, 2001, 2002 years, which I'm sure um, you've got some interesting stories. Uh, were you where were you physically located when you were uh, working with Broad Street at that time? Yeah, so Broad Street was my first uh, experience in in an operating uh, role or environment. I, I I jumped out of investment banking to, to basically 
to join Broad Street, which was a startup in Pittsburgh. So I uh, left New York and, uh, and went to Pittsburgh, and, um, and we really started that company from scratch. You know, we were fairly well capitalized, had um, some strong private equity support and a, and a lot of uh, financing from, uh, from losing capital at that time. And so we, you know, we had all the right ingredients um, at the beginning of that venture. Um, um, and, you know, uh, and I was also, I was brought into that as CFO and, and quite frankly, didn't exactly know what uh, what that meant and how to be a be a CFO. So I was kind of cutting my teeth and starting a company at the same time, which was a you know, which was a great experience. Um, you know, uh, I guess that uh, at that time in my life. Yeah the the downturn. How how did that affect things? Because you guys probably had some. I don't want to say easy, right? But uh, with the backing of the money that came in, in probably as you were out pitching and raising 99 and then 2000 kicking things off you know it was all guns blazing full steam ahead and then 2001 happened what what was that experience like within that business i mean there's there's a lot of executives i've talked to who have gone through that in various capacities and there's not one that uh, walked away from that experience without learning some very very hard lessons and or just lessons that they've kept with them throughout the rest of their life yeah, it was uh it was quite an experience. Uh you know, it was one of my uh one of my toughest, but um you know, I look back at it as something that was a tremendous learning experience for me uh professionally, which I as you mentioned, I've really carried it forward in just everything about everything I've done uh thereafter. So, uh as you said, we were guns blazing deploying capital as fast as we could, building things. I think we were in seven or eight markets. Um uh, during those first two years and playing infrastructure and hiring people. And uh, I, I believe at its peak, the company had about 250 people. But um, as, as you know, when, when the, uh, when the, uh, when telecom nuclear winter hit, things happened very fast. And so um, I, I remember two weeks before Christmas having to let 215 of those 250 people go. And that was, you know, one of the, one of the toughest uh, phone calls uh, because they were spread throughout the country that uh, that I think uh, I've had to be, had to have been involved with, and uh, but you know in in hindsight um, it uh, that that whole experience taught me some I'll call it some life lessons as it relates to everything I did professionally thereafter in terms of you know um, how how. Uh, how quickly things can change, you know, how important timing is, um, you know, how, uh, how, um, how focused you need to be on, you know, on, on making the right business decisions relative to, you know, the, the maturation of your own, um, ability to sustain your operations. So, you know, good, uh, tough experience, but, um, you know, a great learning experience for me for everything that was yet to come. And then after that experience, I saw you join one of the early satellite companies uh, that was coming out in the 2000s. I think SpaceX now has a little over 200 uh, satellites up, and there's lots of interesting stuff going on in that space that is going to transform, I think, how rural uh, America and rural the world is going to be able to access the Internet. But what, what got you into satellite uh, technology and, and working there. Yeah, I guess after Broad Street uh, um, blew up, no, no pun intended, <laughs> as related to satellites, um, the, uh, you know, everything, you know, related to communications and telecom infrastructure was in for some form of restructuring. And so 
I started working really as a uh, with a uh, as a consultant trying to find situations where the you know the new equity holders who are the bond holders um, you know were trying to figure out what they were going to do with what they now uh, effectively owned and and had to opter, operate and, and optimize if you will. And so, you know, I got involved with a bunch of different situations like uh, like a Globix and an XO um, uh, and related telecom uh, companies like that. But then I, uh, I settled into one company that was called Motion Corporation, which, which really had two, two lines of business, if you will. It ran a uh, two-way wireless data communications network, and this was a network that existed prior to the, you know, the big telcos building their own um, their own data networks for BlackBerry and things like that. But in the early days of BlackBerry, um, it, that, that device only operated on two networks, one which was Singular Interactive and then the, uh, the Motion Network. Um, and, uh, and that network also supported some fairly large um, uh, enterprise uh, uh, communications requirements. So if you think of like uh, um, uh, UPS, UPS was a big customer of, uh, of Motion. Um, the, uh, uh, the 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 a lot of field service organizations leveraged you know the the, the wireless capability, but it was you know narrow band and little little data sets you know like I'm here I'm leaving those types of things um, or you know where was the package delivered at what time and so um, you know pretty pretty interesting business, but it had gone through its own restructuring and um, when I was a consultant there it was. It was coming out of bankruptcy, um, and uh, at a time when um, the, the large telcos were starting to build their broadband data networks, and so it had to figure out, you know, how it was going to survive competitively when, um, you know, it, it, uh, its core business, that two-way wireless uh, messaging network, was was going to become not as uh, competitive as, as it used to be. So. That was a continuing restructuring situation, but the other line of business there was they owned 49% of a company um, that was called Mobile Satellite Ventures that had been American Mobile Satellite Corporation. And so, um, you know, that was a troubled business as well, but that business had um, ownership or control over large swaths of, uh, of spectrum um, that uh, that could be leveraged uh, for... Um, or other uh, things uh, that ultimately became cellular um, and, um, and, um, and and DARS, which was uh, the, the really the the the, the wireless communication uh, technology that that XM was uh, created from, and so Spectrum was a really valuable asset, and and so it, uh, that that whole um, my, my whole experience at Motion was really sort of balancing the continued restructuring of of the wireless data network but also trying to position and optimize the the potential value if you will of the the spectrum holdings that um that that MSV uh MSV had gotcha and then the transition over into the data center world with telex happened for you around the same time that I was getting my teeth cut in the industry working out of the San Francisco 200 Paul uh, data center and actually spent a lot of time with Telex because the company I was with United Layer was actually a client oh, of Telex's. Right. So I spent a lot of time with that team out of that facility, uh, getting to know the, the company and, and the operations and started learning just how much money was being made inside those meet me rooms, which was mind blowing at the time. 
Um, but that company has gone through obviously a lot of transition and growth over the last 13 years, both from those early days, just having a handful of properties with the, the Meet Me Room um, core uh, core principle of, of the business to growing into co-location to expanding well beyond that and then the acquisition from digital. But, um, you know, that there's a lot of different topics I'd love to cover with you there. That, that transition into the data center space, was that a evolution that you saw and something strategic on your end? Or was that just a, an opportunity that popped in your, in your lap and uh, something that you jumped out to that extent? Yeah, I was, I, I'd like to say I had the foresight to, to know how you know, exciting the, the data center business would, would become. But, but really, I had uh, kind of wrapped up my, um, my work at, at Motion and was looking for the next adventure and, and, a, and a recruiting uh, agency found me and and you know told me about this interesting opportunity in the data center space and and quite frankly you know so this was right at the end of two thousand six two thousand and seven and in a lot of ways it, there really wasn't a data center industry per se you know there was um, maybe a couple of public companies but only really one Equinix which had gone through you know its own restructuring obviously digital realty trust um existed but you know probably more known at that time as a, a real estate company that had some interesting technical um orientations and so the whole the whole data center acronym if you will or or word was relatively new and so as i jumped in to telex in 2007 um data centers were pretty much brand new to me uh, i knew i knew that data centers existed to house you know certain Infrastructure, but most of um, of data centers were, you know, behind uh, were kind of owned by companies themselves, and there was very little that um, was off premise, if you will. Uh, obviously, very different uh, situation uh, today, and and um, and I had no idea what a meet me room was, and so you know, in a lot of ways, it was um, it was uh, a brand new experience uh, for me. It was certainly related to. Things that I'd done in the past around uh, telecom and, and internet infrastructure in general, but um, uh, but in a lot of ways it was uh, it was a new venture for me. Gotcha. And the, Telex in those days, uh, w- were you part of negotiating that contract with Digital to obtain the exclusive rights to Meet Me Room management inside a handful of the, the properties, or was that prior to your joining? Yeah, it it, pre, it it happened right before I joined. So, uh, as you know, uh, at that time, Telex was owned um, by uh, principally uh, GI Partners, who had been, um, um, I, I'd say, one of the founding um, founding members or or investors in in in, in what became Digital Real Trust. And so, um, they they had a obviously uh, a good perspective on 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 digital and the types of uh, you know um, uh, carrier hotel assets that they owned and and ultimately you know had had foresight in terms of what what um, you know the the, the meet me room environments in particular uh, had the potential to come and so um, so those, those deals uh, they bought Telex I think in the beginning of two thousand and six um, and then bought one, bought the um, the colocation and and that effectively was the meet me room within 111 8th Avenue. And then the digital deal was done right at the end of 2006. And I joined right in the beginning of 2007. So um, I, 
when I came in, they were just trying to figure it out what it was they bought, um, or in, in the digital case, uh, you know, figure out what they what they leased. Um, the interesting thing about um, those meet me rooms is, you know, that transaction, um, which was a relatively large um, leasing event for digital at that time, um, you know, was a set of um, you know operating environments within their buildings that um, they leased to us. Uh, but those came with about six million in revenues and about nine million in cost. So, you know what what we what we took over was by no means um, something that um, you know was was immediately um, you know accretive to to, um, to to what Telex was at that point in time. So there was a lot of work that that had to be done to that had to be done to take it to where we ultimately did nine nine years later. Yeah, the uh, there's a handful of interesting things that I saw go on there where the um, the management of those meet me rooms is by no means simple <laughs> or, or easy. Uh, and yet I find and have and found, especially back then, Digital Realty was truly a, a real estate company and the ownership and management had very little understanding of what was truly going on inside of their properties and their facilities. I mean, they clearly had some idea. Uh, but unfortunately, like a lot of the REITs uh, up until, I would say, the last couple of years, uh, the ownership seemed to just pe- view them as pure real estate assets. And if you asked an owner as to why any one of their properties was more lucrative or more beneficial than another, they really would kind of look at you with a blank stare and cock their head and say, well, that's what I have really smart people around me to figure out. Um, and that's in large part, to be totally honest, why I started my venture on my own. Uh, and started doing a lot of the training and education was when I realized that the owners of a lot of these data center companies really were not technologists and they didn't understand the clientele inside their own buildings. They understood the financials and they understood how much money they were making and the, and the contracts, but they didn't understand the technology. Um, and so marrying all that together was just a, a very, let's just say, fun process for me uh, to go through at that time and the conversations I was having. Um, and with digital, did you did you find that there was a similar um, scenario playing out with them, and that you know they gradually over time started to wake up to the reality of how valuable their their assets were and why they were valuable and what they could or should be doing with those assets? Yeah, uh, at, at that time, um, you know, I, I'd say for the REIT um, uh, industry, anything that involved uh, that anything that was more on the Services side versus the you know the the, the the real estate side was 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 bad income for them um, and so the the meet me rooms you know were generated service income that um, they couldn't necessarily treat as um, as comparable read income to to other things so for them to be able to you know lease the environments for to us and for us to take over the service component of the business uh, you know really um uh made those uh, made those environments good income and so in 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 the 2007 time frame you know there was there was little discussion of the importance of network and interconnection uh, uh relative to what was being done in those environments uh, and and um and you know i i always say even for equinix who obviously is a, a market leader in this arena today you know, uh, interconnection was like a nine percent um, line item on their P and L that they 
they sort of glossed over in their you know their earnings discussions because it was such a small component um, of their business. Um, obviously, fast forward today, and that whole dynamic is different. You know, and for Telex, um, you know, we spent a ton of time um, really uh, productizing, if you will, what was going on in the Meet Me Room, getting get in the Meet Me Rooms, getting a control over you know our inventory, which was really our customers' critical inventory, which were the the connections themselves. And and you know, in in those early days, you know, there's some pretty large telecommunications providers who really didn't have a good handle on how many cross connects they had, um, who was connected to who, um, and um, and also a lot of telecom companies were were acquiring um, tons of other companies. So if you think of a level three, you know, um, level three was a single customer to Telex, but they had probably seventeen to eighteen different contracts that had different levels of cross connects in different environments. And and I like to think Telex, um, you know. Uh, and the uh, you know the the telex model created a, a lot of structure um around that inventory for our customers and allowed them to to really more efficiently deploy those resources which um you know and that was really just providing the insight into how much inventory they had and where and because some of that inventory was not not necessary to maintain and but and and so you know we put a lot of hard work into you know, making consumption of that what became an even more critical resource over the next decade easy and cost efficient for uh, for our customers. You know, through that time frame, we got a, a lot of flack for being a toll taker and and um, you know and charging for you know the, what was a hundred percent margin product to some, but you know, in a lot of ways, you know, we weren't a hundred percent margin business by any means, and and you know, all the work that we did was was you know enabling access to those critical resources in in buildings that, you know, uh, were managed by large REIT landlords that weren't um, in the business of of managing that complexity or in the business of of, uh, of delivering a, a, on a service model. And so in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, we were we were protecting these environments and and managing these environments and involving these environments on be, uh, on behalf of our customers that you know, part of our uh, part of our business challenge, if you will, was to, in some cases, work with New York City landlords to uh, to ensure that the environments had all the uh, resiliency and redundancy that they needed at a cost structure that would allow us to continue to do what we do or we did uh, on behalf of um, our our consumers who were, you know, each and every day on the day becoming more dependent on um, on the the scale. Uh, and and um, resiliency and 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 latency of their their network related uh, resources. Yeah, you you hit on two things that I'd love to dig further on. One is the beh- behind the scenes operations and management of those meet me rooms is something that many take for granted. And the data center industry as it exists today, I think, has been largely shaped by the process procedures uh, technology that came out of managing those meet me rooms uh, and the complexity and making sense of all that complexity and productizing that, that complexity. Um, and I think that's, it, are there certain pieces of that puzzle that you've learned that you think are, are overlooked consistently when people do look at the Equinixes and, you know, digital realties and whatnot, the people who own those carry hotels and charge you know, 
hundreds of dollars for monthly cross-connect fees. Um, what are those pieces? Because I, I know those who, who are listening probably still have that impression that they're toll takers um, and that the constant increase in fees is egregious, right? You know, that's, I hear that consistently. What, what are they missing? Um, and what are the other components here uh, that people should be keeping in mind before they make the assumption that these these uh, companies charging these fees are just making money hands over fist for simply putting you know a couple feet of fiber from point A to point B? Yeah. Well, um, uh, I think the the first thing is what I what I already mentioned in that um, uh, some of these environments are leased, some of them are owned. Um, for those that were that were leased, you know, it's it's our responsibility to ensure that those environments kind of stay open and available to to the you know network providers, the technology providers, and so forth that 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 need to leverage the the amount and avail you know really the the wholesale capability within those environments to get uh, to connect to any other network provider to federate your given application or your data all over the world. So, you know, the doors have to stay open, if you will. And so some of those, some of those environments, uh, as I mentioned, are, you know, leased from, you know, um, landlords who really don't understand the business. And, you know, they just understand, um, you know, their, their rent check and, and, you know, and um, sometimes there's kind of adverse um, situations where, where you know there are, there are either costs imposed or on on us as the lessor, or there's you know there's power that becomes either unavailable or expensive, and and so you know it was our responsibility just to to you know manage those and ensure that we 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 had a business that could to could sustain could sustain itself profitably to keep really those those doors open, if you will, and so. Um, you know that that I like to say was was no small feat. Um, even even with a you know digital realty trust, um, you know they were not in the business of of running meet me rooms, and and we were, and and um, and that we, we needed to not only maintain the existing environments, we needed to expand them. So I think uh, over the the nine years I was with Telex, we did um, somewhere close to I think it was twenty five. Um, co-location expansions within those digital environments, um, which uh, which was critical to maintaining the scale of environment to manage to you know the, what what became um, somewhat a hyperscale nature of growth for the amount of connectivity that needed to flow through these buildings. So there's the real estate component of it. There's really the investing in the um, in the inventory and automation platforms, such that. People knew uh, what they were consuming um, and had, you know, their own their own um, readily available inventory to manage. And so, because um, we not only provision the cross connects themselves, but we really manage the inventory, both you know, um, both connecting and disconnecting um, those cross connects within within those environments and and the in the platforms that enabled us to inventory, you know, what became. You know, tens of thousands of cross connects for our customers um, were 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 not inexpensive and and were 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 very became uh, even more robust. And then the automation capabilities that effectively allowed our customers to you know uh, via just a mouse click um, connect you know from their environment to you know to you know one carrier or fifty different carriers within an environment within. You know, within a within a 
you know, really the the click was the second, but we uh, we had a um, an SLA that we would uh, be able to uh, provide that cross connect in 24 hours, which uh, I can remember the day when somebody had, uh, that we were recruited many years later um, from uh, from CenturyLink mentioned that uh, that uh, in the in the earlier years of my time at Telex, they they found out that somebody could provision a cross connect in or in 24 hours, and for them it was taking anywhere from three to five weeks, and 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 that was something that they needed to you know to to address because that was a game changer for them, and so. You know, and it was really our investment in that and the automation tools that allowed us to do that and ensure that it actually happened. Um, and and it happened in a in a way that uh, that um, it was um, uh, it was uh, uh, the, that the customer could could trust that it would happen in the time frame was was something that uh, didn't exist. And so those investments ultimately, you know, had to be. Um, had to, you know, generate a return to back to my original point, such that we could, you know, maintain a sustainable, profitable business, continue to invest in those capabilities to process even more cross connects for our customers faster and faster. And then there was just sort of the business development of the whole business model, and that, you know, we were constantly bringing in new carriers, new um, uh, new internet companies. So, you know, if you think about companies like Facebook and Netflix and Amazon, you know, they were, they were relatively, um, uh, young companies in the early, uh, in the early days of my time at Telex, 07 through 09. And so, you know, they were just beginning, they were at their earliest stages of, of hyperscale. And so, you know, working with those companies, getting them in the, the environment, not only drove revenue for our existing customers in the form of, you know, the carriers that were, you know, taking, um, you know, the, taking Facebook all over the all, all over the world, but you know, but, but you know, vice versa. So everybody in the ecosystem was driving opportunity for everybody else. So we were bringing more and more people into the ecosystem, which was just driving more and more business for all involved. And so all of that business development activity, you know, ultimately, you know, was uh, was needed to generate a return as well. So you know, there's a lot that goes into um, enabling. Um, Really, the optionality, if you will, or the utility um, in 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 uh, in those environments that uh, I think is underappreciated in general uh, from those that are consuming it, because they just think, hey, they, you know, uh, two hundred, whatever it is, two hundred fifty to four hundred fifty dollars across connect. Um, if there's there's no cost behind that. You know, there's a there's actually a ton of cost behind that. There's real estate management. There's there's um, you know platform management, and then there are people. Uh, involved with that as well, and so um, you know all, all of that is effectively part of the cost structure of, of uh, provisioning across. Yeah, that last one, people, is what I wanted to chime in uh, and say is that's that's a huge cost, especially when you want uh, to have redundancy in people and you want to have twenty four seven three sixty five support, uh, such that if someone calls in at three a.m., you have a live person who can pick up the phone and actually. Uh, assist with an issue, and that's that's a huge piece of the equation. Um, yeah, and, and and those people, you know, need to be trained and have career paths and all those kinds of things. So, um, you know, uh, and 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 we're pretty highly specialized as well. So you didn't uh, you didn't have the luxury of you know uh, a, a workforce that had been trained in, in meet me room operations. So you know when we brought people in and, and trained them and. Uh, you know, whether it was on the platform or the provisioning side, um, you know, you really want to keep those people because they're doing a fairly specialized 
um, you know, activity in in highly specialized environments. And so, you know, retention, I guess, is is fairly uh, fairly critical, which is part of cost as well. So the other piece here that you mentioned is bad income. And I think that's key for listeners to understand as to why it would be that services uh, or non-real estate related or, or contracted lease related income is quote unquote bad income for a real estate investment trust or a firm who's looking to try to eventually structure themselves as a REIT. Can you can you dig a little bit deeper into that and explain that? Well, I'll do my best. It's uh, it can get a little technical, but basically, um, you know, REITs. There's certain income um, that that's good income for for REITs um, that uh, essentially allows them to enjoy um, uh, you know all the benefits, the tax benefits of being a REIT, and that's really you know um, income or revenues, if you will, that are generated from real estate um, uh, related activities um, or the from the real estate itself. So obviously the rent that a that a tenant pays within an apartment building or 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 um or in a building that um that serves as a data center is, you know, it's real estate related income. But things that are ancillary to real estate um um related income um which are generally, you know, services that may be um provided by the real estate company to a tenant that have nothing necessarily to do with the building are are Considered um, or, or or in the past at least because this has evolved over time, or or were considered not good rate income, so didn't qualify for the same um, uh, treatments um, that led to the tax benefits that you get out of a REIT structure. That's a that's evolved evolved over time. It evolved the, during the time that I was at Telex because you know Equinix wasn't a REIT. Um, uh, 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 I'm trying to think. Uh, there were, there were other companies that had not um, gone um, the REIT status yet, and so, um, but so basically, they tried to avoid anybody that was seeking REIT status in in the um, in the in the late um, 2000 timeframe was trying to avoid that income because you cannot you can't have too much of that you know non good REIT income um, uh, because at a certain at a certain level of that income you you might disqualify yourself. Uh, or uh, as a read, so you really had to monitor that over the course of the decade that I was at Telex. Though you know, people were obviously testing that model, and 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 to the point where now um, you know, cross connect revenue, which was considered ancillary and and bad income, is now actually um, good income uh, because uh, they basically petitioned the um, the IRS that that. Should be treated as uh, comparable income to, you know, leasing the environment itself because you know cost connects are considered a, a you know essentially an essential service to enabling the real estate within the building. And so now, um, you know, cross connectivity, cross connects are considered a good good income, um, and uh, and and that enabled. Folks like Equinix to ultimately um, go read. So uh, that that bad income is not as much of an issue now um, uh, as it was uh, 12, 12, 13 years ago. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And the other, so for example, let's let's go through what "quote unquote" bad income might be as it relates to our industry, right? So managed services, uh, managed hosting. Um, 
IaaS cloud-based related services would be considered bad income. Uh, remote hands and eyes income would be considered bad income. Um, is there anything else I'm, I'm missing? No, I think I think that's about it. And I don't know. Uh, I haven't studied it uh, closely in a while. I don't know exactly where you know something like a remote hands, like you mentioned, would fit. But you know, yeah. I, I would believe that like managed services um, uh, and, and cloud services would fall outside of that. But you know. Things you know certainly somebody could try to test um, that uh, that assumption, if you will, or presumption on the IRS's part as well, um, and 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 maybe win that argument. But I'm not sure anybody has tried to do that uh, yeah. as of late. So you'll find this an interesting story. In around 2011, I uh, sat down with an executive who's uh, I'll I'll leave nameless at Digital Realty when I was in San Francisco. Uh, working and had a conversation with them and they were asking me about telex and you know they were looking at telex and potentially acquiring telex and uh, what my thoughts were and i was unequivocally saying yes you guys need to do that because this was right when digital was starting to dabble in the co-location space when they were trying to do um, much smaller contracts and dedicate suites that were you know megawatt 1.2 megawatt or or half of that just for co-location services um, and I was having a heck of a time working with them in that capacity because their contracts were still these super long lease contracts. Um, and, and they would have, you know, these suites that they would say would be dedicated to co-location. And then two months later, they'd have one of their major wholesale clients just take down the whole thing. So I'd be, you know, about to close a, a small five cabinet or 10 cabinet deal. And then they'd say, sorry, we just had someone take down the whole thing. It's no longer available. Um, and it was just driving me crazy. So they said, well, what do you think we should do? And I said, well, you need to buy Telex. It makes <laughs> all the sense of the world. And they're like, we don't need to buy Telex. Uh, you know, we're, we're digital realty trust. You know, we have access to billions of dollars. We can just buy the best talent and we can, we can do this. And I said, no, you guys can't. You know, you operate like a real estate company. And co-location businesses are very different. There's a lot more handholding that has to go in the process with a customer. And you have a lot more customers who are asking a lot more questions on a day-to-day basis that need remote hands and eyes. And it's not, hey, we've got a guy across town who can get out of bed at 2 a.m. to come go take care of that for you. It's the person needs to be on site at the building. Uh, to be able to access and because that's what your competition is delivering. Um, and so you're not going to be able to compete in these co-location contracts unless you have a firm who has experience, has the operational experience and the sales experience to be able to execute. And they kind of shunned me and were like, eh, we're, we're t- you don't understand, Sean, we're digital realty. We're going to make this happen. We're going to do it on our own. And I was like, okay. And then sure enough, a few years later, they acquired Telex for exponentially more dollars than they could have at that time. Um, it was just very interesting, the bravado of digital in those days, thinking that they were going to easily be able to become co-location service providers. Um. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I remember that. Uh, I remember that time period because... Uh, because obviously it was it had had the potential to impact what we were doing and um you know and and it it implied that they you know had um some rights and abilities to to get what yeah, they effectively leased uh from us um uh, you know for free or 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 in some um advantage manner and so you know that obviously 
was something that we were paying very close attention to. But, you know, digital really didn't, um, you know, it, it didn't have the ability to process the, trend, the, the transactions that we were processing, which on a monthly basis were in the thousands. And so, um, you know, because as you start um, pursuing a, a retail co-location model, you know, you're obviously creating an, um, you know, multi-tenant environments that have, you know, in some cases, customers in in the hundreds that are doing moves, ads, and changes left and right, and and you know, and each one of those is a is a mini lease that you know that you know when you, once you start getting in the hundreds and the thousands, it doesn't fit into you know their their modeling, their Argus modeling uh, very very uh, very efficiently, and and that all needs to be managed. And and to your point, that that really wasn't the the DNA of um, of of digital. And so I think that was a bit of a, a you know a, a, I don't want to call it a rude awakening, but an awakening for them that that business was 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 harder in in particular in scale than they um, than they uh, obviously thought it thought it was before that. Yeah, and. It was a little bit before then, actually it was a couple of years before then, that Telex also made somewhat of a transition where you guys had a lot of, the vast majority, if not all of your uh, facilities were lease agreements with the likes of digital and, and related um, assets, but you started getting into the co-location game yourselves and starting to deploy and manage your own facilities. Um, do you remember that time frame and what the decision-making process was there? Was that just pure, hey, there's money to be made here. We already have the systems and the processes in place. We can do it better than the co-location providers that are out there. Why the hell not? Or you know, what all was in that conversation? Yeah, well, uh, I do remember that time uh, time period, and and it was really, uh, you know, we we got to a point where we there wasn't enough growth capacity within the buildings. The, I would say it, the legacy buildings themselves that we were operating in, and and co-location, in particular, network-enabled co-location, was um, becoming more and more important to internet companies, technology companies, um, who you know, several of which were, you know, scaling incredibly rapidly and just needed more and more of it. And so, you know, we we obviously had our traditional environments and. You know, 60 Hudson, which was leased, 111 8th Avenue, that was leased, and the and the digital facilities that were leased. But um, you know, the 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 demand for larger and larger environments that could access those environments were were larger than those buildings could accommodate. And so we started um, uh, investing in capacity, you know, outside those that could solve for larger um, larger use cases, more in some cases more enterprise oriented use cases that. That tethered back into, you know, effectively the, the 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 environment that we had created in the buildings, and and have direct access that we managed, you know, because it was different for somebody that was, you know, that had a um, a data center environment tethered back into our environment, but didn't necessarily manage, you know, that that everything from end to end, and so um, so we started developing, you know, basically. Um, uh, inventory that would uh, that would ma- that was managing to the the growth um, requirements of of companies like Facebook and Netflix and and others um, that obviously is a are are have continued to be major consumers in our industry and so um, and so and, and plus we needed to be not as 
um, not as beholden to you know those leasing arrangements. So as we started investing in things that we effectively owned, it uh, it began to transform Telex into something that was just a you know leasing small environments within um, within carrier hotels to becoming a full fledged you know data center solutions provider that happened to have a very large distributed uh, connectivity centric um, platform that it could that could enable every one of those. Um, uh, every one of those new expansions, and that's that's really became a, a focal strategy for us. Well, I appreciate. It. There's a million other questions I'd love to ask uh, you about that time frame and the the whole digital acquisition of Telex and the merging of the two businesses and whatnot. But I'd love to fast forward a little bit to the time that you transitioned over into Peak Ten, which is now Flexential. And the relationship uh, between, or not the relationship, the the, uh, the ViaWest uh, acquisition as well was very interesting. I actually, back in the day, did a lot of business with ViaWest. I really loved that company, uh, the team there, the leadership, uh, their turnaround times, their transparency. And I was on the West Coast at that point uh, before I moved out here to the East Coast about four years ago. And so I had a you know, that's where their primary presence was. And so I really didn't know too much about Peak 10, in fact, until I moved out here to, to Raleigh, North Carolina in January 2016 and started uncovering um, what was going on. And I remember one of the uh, conversations I had with, I forget his name, but the, it was talking to the CFO of IO West right before I was about to close a, a large deal with them up in their facility in in um, in. Oregon, Portland, Oregon, um, Hillsborough. And uh, I was saying, look, you know, what's happening, there's a lot of acquisitions and mergers going on in this industry. The last thing I want is to put my customer into a provider who's just going to go through another M&A and have a whole, the whole support team basically get ripped out and changed and you know, new leadership and you know, new brand. And it's just hard for clients to go through that process. And he said, I promise you that's not happening, blah, blah, blah. And like, I think it was two weeks later, um, Peak 10 acquired by OS. <laughs> and I was like, ah. Um, but that whole uh, acquisition, can you walk me through, you know, you'd already been at Peak 10 for some time. Um, I know that ViaWest had, you know, I now know that ViaWest had been on the market looking for a, a suitor, looking for an acquirer for some time. Um, and actually, that was not when Peak 10 bought them. That was when, what was it, Shaw? Shaw. That's Shaw. That was when Shaw bought them. And I was, I was really pissed, actually, because as you well know, traditionally, when the likes of the major telecom providers had bought data center companies, um, routinely, they try to convert these data center companies into telecom operational businesses. And the leadership would leave, the facilities managers would leave. The comp plans for all the sales reps would change. And so the sales reps would leave, the engineers would leave, and they would basically gut the data center business. Um, and so that's what I was really pissed at. But I was fortunate enough for ViaWest, Shaw left them alone and really took that talent and brought it into Shaw versus vice versa. So that was actually played out very nicely. So I apologize. I, I had that timetable backwards in my mind. Um, you guys acquired ViaWest, when was it? Three years ago? Two and a half years ago-ish? Yeah, it was uh, right, I guess, September 2017 was the official close date. Yeah, there you go. Um, 
and and Shaw was looking. Can you walk through? I don't know what you legally or, or or not can say, but you know why? Can you talk to why Shaw was looking to um, you know liquidate that asset or you know sell off that asset? Um, and what the you know I think it's clear at least to me, but maybe not for our listeners as to why it was that BioWest was such a great addition to the Peak Ten uh, existing you know environments and what is now you know Flexential. Can you walk us through maybe the storyline there? Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess just a quick backdrop. So uh, I, I Telex was sold at the end of 2015, and I took about a year off. Um, but uh, as as I usually <laughs> usually do, I sort of found myself itching to figure out what the what the new new adventure was, and it just so happened that um, I guess at the time around the time that I was. Uh, we were working on the um, the sale of Telex. GI bought um, GI bought Peak Ten, and uh, so they were. Well, they had exited Telex in 2011. They were now back invested in the space um, via via Peak Ten, and so um, it was just a bit serendipitous from a timing perspective that I was a free agent, and and they had made that investment, and and they were working through a bit of a succession um, plan plan uh, for the existing uh, CEO Dave, David Jones, who had founded uh, Peak Ten and and really uh, grew it um, to the platform that it was over the course of the next uh, 17 years. I I guess it is. Um, and so, so timing worked out well and I jumped into peak 10 and, um, and really at that time, you know, I, I appreciated peak 10 for the platform that it was because, you know, one thing I, um, one, one, one thing I knew I didn't want to do over again from my time at Telex was really go through all the bootstrapping of the building the back office and, and all the systems that need to be in place to, you know, have a, you know, a functional running company that can then consider, um, uh, new, new exciting growth, uh, trajectories or plans, if you will. And so, you know, I jumped in with no, no, uh, none of us had any idea that the ViaWest opportunity would present itself. So, you know, I was in, in the early stages of laying out a new game plan and strategy for, for peak 10. And then, um, and then the ViaWest transaction uh, came up, and and um, and we you know we engaged fairly immediately with that, um, really for two reasons. One, the strategic narrative of putting the two companies together just made great sense. Uh, but number two is is GI actually had been uh, be- when uh, before Shaw bought the company, it was owned by um, by Oak Oak Hill, and actually GI had. Had uh, made a smaller investment into ViaWest, and I believe was like a minority equity holder. Um, I might have my facts wrong a little bit there in ViaWest. And so, when the, when they actually made their Peak Ten investment, uh, you know, there was some thought. I th- I think that there, you know, there could be um, you know opportunities between the uh, between the two companies. But um, obviously, um, ViaWest was sold to Shaw. And, um, you know, that obviously, uh, trumped any ability to, to, um, you know, really, um, act upon, you know, whatever opportunities might have existed. And so I think Shaw ended up, you know, they bought the company and they, as you said earlier, they really left the company alone to do what it, what it did best. Um, and it was obviously in the U.S. versus Canada. Um, and I think they owned it for a little over four years. Um, you know, while I, I can't speak to, you know, what was, what drove, um, Shaw's um, specific decisions around the ultimate sale, you know, I, I, I generally have characterized it in the fact that 
the data center business is capital intensive, and and um, and uh, the VIOS business was consuming capital that um, I, I think the Shaw business was changing. Um, you know, traditional um, telco networks were becoming you know more and more strained, if you will, with the development of wireless, and they needed capital to re redeploy into you know their core business which was not data centers and so i think over time data centers just became um ancillary to their core focus and and uh and ancillary but also um um capital consuming if you will and so i th- i think it just made sense for them to to um to uh to to sell the business so they could you know focus their capital otherwise and so that's that's exactly what they did, and um, and uh, as, as as the as soon as the the BioS process started, you know, we really um, just uh, uh, pursued it with uh, you know con, you know really really with a um, driving conviction that we that we wanted to win it, and, and ultimately we did. So let's let's go through the last few years of uh, Flexential and the um, I guess the vision of the business and what what the company is doing. I know Peak 10 and ViaWest both had a managed services arm of the business and they were operating them in a little bit different of a, a form and a fashion. Peak 10 had a lot of contracts with third-party providers that were delivering services, almost white label through Peak 10. ViaWest had a team that was supporting it internally for the vast majority of their, their hosted services. Um, and I know the, the whole managed services platform uh, is... I guess was when you joined Peak 10 uh, back then was a little bit new of a, I guess, a revenue stream and a product set for you to wrap your head around. Um, how has that evolved over time and what, what is the future as to how Flex Central is going to view those products and services? Yeah, sure. So um, when we put the two companies together, um, it, it obviously solved for uh, one very important thing in that we became a, a national platform overnight. And you know, both um, legacy companies were big in 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 their own right, but they they only did things really east and west of the Mississippi. And so, you know, there there have been um, and there are you know fairly significant consumption sets that that want to um, you know that want uh, data center solutions nationally, and and neither BioWest or Peak Ten could really get you know really uh, get involved with those types of demand sets because they didn't have a solution for it so when we created flexential um, that became a, a really an opportunity a demand set opportunity that didn't exist before and and so I always say in a lot of ways flexential while the combination of two companies that um, that had been around for you know, 17 to 18 years, respective, respectively, it was very much a, a new business with um, very large new opportunities uh, ahead of it. And so, you know, we needed to um, really transform the way that we went to market to get in front of those uh, demand sets, and then also transform the way that we, um, you know, we we did our own service delivery now for customers that might be consuming across you know, multiple geographies in that, you know, our service delivery model couldn't be um, couldn't be bespoke from one geography to the other. It needed to be really well coordinated and we had to have really the, the back office um, uh, infrastructure systems um, procedures to to really deliver um, the same value proposition the same way uh, across the country. And so 
so that was really you know big part of um the strategy after combination was to was to be able to deliver you know a, a consistent service offering um across the, uh, across the country um you know obviously we um we we offered the 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 co-location itself space power and connectivity within the environments um uh, uh one of the things i realized very early uh, in the combination is that we had uh, a fairly significant amount of connectivity resources that had developed within our facilities over the course of those 17 18 years for both both companies and and those connectivity you know, uh, uh, resources in the form of, you know, carrier density and, and, uh, inter, uh, facility, um, um, uh, uh, transport facilities wasn't really, um, advertised by other, other company. And obviously, um, over the course of the decade before our combination, you know, connectivity and network and, and latency and, um, and the ability to federate data, um, Anywhere and everywhere was really just sort of the 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 leading um, uh, the leading uh, uh, differentiator for for people picking you know which which uh, data center they were going to you know place their infrastructure and so we needed to to take that capability and, and bring it to the forefront of our uh, of our go to market because um, I'd say generally people were unaware that we that um you know that now Flexential or you know legacy peak 10 virus had had those capability sets so we focused very early on on that but to your you know to your question we also both companies had um invested in um in 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 cloud uh, resources um as well as uh provided other managed services um that I'd say was you know uh um you know more focused uh on and I'd say the smaller to medium size, you know, enterprise customer base for for both companies. But, you know, Flexential now as a service provider, you know, had the, the ability to provide, um, you know, really that the uh, hybrid portfolio of of um, of uh, of services to to um, to consumers who are generally um, looking for. You know, not only a data center, but a data center that enabled um, uh, additional, uh, which I refer to as additional utilities, um, so d- additional service sets that they will likely need to leverage over time. And so, um, so I, I like to think of the flexential environments as being um, uh, more enabled than most in terms of our ability to not only you know give um give a customer a redundant resilient environment that's um that's uh that's well enabled with connectivity resources but it goes it goes beyond that in terms of if they need to leverage compute utility in a dynamic way we can do that if they need to um uh have a um um a a recovery location or a a, a disaster recovery um Solution within their their IT strategy, we can enable that if they need to, um, if they need professional services to help them with uh, environment architecture, network architecture, uh, cloud, um, uh, both public and private architecture, we can do that. And and you know the 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 IT journey is is becoming more and more um, uh, involved and complex, and so the Flexential platform has the ability to um, to you know I'd say help. In, in more areas um, than, than than many of our peer peers uh, peers can, and so, but you know, ultimately, the data center itself is um, is the home by which 
our customers can consume those utilities, and the more the more um, uh, uh, the more enabled we make those environments with uh, you know with broader capability sets, the more attractive they should be um, uh, for for the customer over or over somebody else's. So, but you know, in general, um, at a high level, the profile of our business now, you know, we we tend to look at you know two really two product groups within uh, Flexential Collocation Services, um, which is, you know, collocation and network. You know, that's that's about 75% of our business today. So, you know, that is, uh, again, um, uh, the, the the data center and, and, all, and all things that uh, enable that environment. Uh, but then um, cloud demand solutions, about 25% are, are, you know, are differentiated capabilities that we can bring to bear when a customer is ready to, to leverage those those um, those resources. Yeah, and that's uh, interesting and important for people to note is that Flexential is more than just a power and space and, and pipe company, but they they have a number of engineering resources that can help architect environments and then manage and host applications within the, the four walls of the various different data centers you guys have all over the U.S. The to, if, to if, I, if I might just jump in there one second. Sure. Yep. It's interesting. You said four walls because we actually we just launched a, a new set uh, website last week, um, and and you know our whole um, message is that um, that you know the it, it's it's that people need to think of uh, a flexential as as a as a provider that. Um, that enables them well be well beyond the four walls of the data center. So, you know, back to you know the ability to deliver uh, some of those uh, those hybrid resources kind of on demand. You know, to reach you know enables um, for those businesses uh, uh, critical IT um, um, solutions that go well outside of the four walls of the data center. So, just wanted to jump in there since you, you jumped on the the four walls. Yeah, that's that's funny. I swear I did not do that purposefully, but I just pulled up your website, and sure enough, there it is. Um, the new website looks pretty pretty awesome, by the way. Um, so hats off to whoever was well with that process. But that actually is a perfect segue into the next question I have for you, which is, and I know it varies company to company, but as the CEO of Flexential, what does your day to day look like? You know, what what falls on your shoulders that would not fall on other shoulders? And can you give our audience that's listening uh, an idea as to what the day in the life of Chris Downey might look like through the course of any given week? Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, I think in, I view my, one of my primary responsibilities is to, you know, from a, um, is to guide the company strategically, and and you know what what does that mean? Um, you know, it it means making sure that I'm I'm absorbing as much of of uh, of what's going on out there in terms of the the consumption sets, um, you know, in the in in the IT domain, if you will. Um, you know, we obviously have our data centers, but you know, there's uh, obviously you know cloud is a relatively new resource in the grand scheme of things, and and how do we need to leverage that to to enable the, the 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 best solution for our customers, but also do it in a way that we're not um, we're not stretching resource to accomplish something that um, that may or may not um, may or may not you know drive the the economic return that we need to you know again back to the the telex example sustain you know a long term profitable um, 
uh, in a business for, you know, for our customers, because when our customers sign up with us, you know, hopefully it's for life. And, um, you know, and as long as we continue to, um, have the resources to, to reinvest back in the, uh, in the facility. So in, in some respects, it's just sort of charting the, uh, the landscape, uh, ahead and making sure that we're making, you know, the right strategic resources. So I spent a fair amount of time with, with, um, uh, with several of our technology partners, uh, spend time with, you know, the investment community and, and, um, and, uh, and, and several other uh, channels, if you will, to ensure that, uh, that, you know, we're, we're taking the best, uh, um, best informed steps forward in terms of, you know, where we deploy our resource, which is, you know, um, our dollars, but, um, as, as equally as important, um, you know, our, our people and everything that, um, you know, that, uh, that comes along with it. And so, so I spent a fair amount of time on that. Um, I spent a fair amount of time on, um, on, on, on awareness. And so, um, you know, I spent, I, I, I ensure that, you know, that people see, um, Flexential every day on, on, on LinkedIn and not that I'm the, the social media responsible for social media for, 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 um, for, for Flexential, but really just making sure that, um, uh, you know, we as a company are, um, are, uh, being ambassadors of, of, you know, all the hard work that, and investment that we've put in to the company. Um, also just people and culture and organizational development, um, is a big focus for me as well. Um, and then, you know, then there's just a whole lot of tactical stuff in terms of, um, you know, making sure that we're following through on the, uh, on the key priorities and initiatives that we set out, um, uh, in, uh, each year and ensuring that, um, you know, we're following through because ultimately that follow through, you know, drives, um, drives growth, which allows us to, you know, access more capital, which allows us to, to, um, you know, fuel more, um, more opportunity for, um, for our customers' growth, um, and that's about securing new inventory for growth. That's about product development in new areas um, uh, to build greater utility in our environments. So I guess that's um, that's it at a at a high level. Yeah, that, that's all. That's all you're doing on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I must say, uh, and I think I mentioned it earlier on, but. You mentioned the word ambassador, and it's interesting to me how few people in your position for related companies in our space are not truly serving as those ambassadors. They kind of sit on the background and you rarely hear their name mentioned. Um, but, you know, your role as an ambassador, it's obvious that you take it seriously and you do a fairly good job uh, online doing that and then rolling around to different industry related uh, events and whatnot to keep. Um, Flex Central top of mind. And from my perspective, you know, whether your title is CEO or president or whatever it is, in that capacity, you need to be out there on a regular basis. And I don't know if it's a nature of our our industry having a real estate background or or having primarily finance people running it on the background. Um, but it seems to be a total lack of understanding of how important marketing and communications is and and should be for those businesses, which I guess makes a ton of sense given your background uh, that you mentioned going through college as a communications um, focus. Yeah, um, and it's it's actually something that I reinforce um, internally um, every chance I get because um, you know while we have 
3,700 customers across the platform, you know, it's uh, it's really not. And while they might have a material in, investment with us, it's not really their job to pay attention to what we what we're doing um, and the new things that we're bringing to market. So, you know, we might have signed a customer up seven years ago, ten years ago, um, for. Um, uh, that may be actually a very large customer today, but they consume they they bought colo from us um, they needed a you know they needed a data center that was off premise that had the resiliency and redundancy that would keep their infrastructure secure um, They may not even know um, that we uh, have cloud um, and other hybrid offerings um, that they you know may very well need today because it's not you know we shouldn't expect them to pay attention to our press releases we shouldn't expect them to necessarily pay attention to our newsletters you know we need to be in you know active dialogue and engagement with our customers because um, their business is changing their requirements are changing the people are changing um, and and um, we can't just assume that because they bought something from us, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna default to us for whatever their you know their next generation of requirements are. And so um, you know, being engaged with our customer base, you know, talking to them about their um, their challenges uh, is something we need to be doing you know each and every day. And I think people take that for granted and uh, kind of sometimes kind of set and forget and. Um, and, you know, as a business, you know, we really can't do that because there's a lot of dynamic things going on out there. And we need to be, we need to be, you know, really, uh, uh, um, you know, in front of our customers, if not ahead of our customers in terms of, you know, um, so solving for their requirements. So something I'm very passionate about. Yeah. Uh, and hitting them from every angle possible and realizing that different people receive information in different ways, right? So just because you have a strong social media campaign, doesn't mean that anyone's even going to see it because most of the engineers that are buying our services aren't sitting around on LinkedIn watching what's coming through every couple of minutes. Uh, yeah. So that's, yeah. Yeah. And the other thing I focus, I, I, you know, which is, I guess, in, that I think about as relates to the, the campaigning that I do is that um, I think it's pretty interesting how few people that, you know, use the you know the computers that we call phones today or devices you know have any idea what a data center is um and why it's important for you know the delivery of what they um what they assume will always be available instantaneously you know on their phones and so there's a bit of an education um that I'm trying to accomplish with a broader universe that may not necessarily be in the data center space to understand that you know this industry exists and, you know, it exists for a very specific reason and it's doing a lot of great, very dynamic things to, to enable uh, companies to do the, 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 really the, the great things that they do. And, and, you know, I, uh, and I, I would bet if you just sort of were in a, we're in a room of a hundred people and you ask them what a data center is, you'd have, probably have a few people that would raise their hand, obviously not an industry event. Everybody would raise their hand, but um, I had the opportunity to be a uh, kind of a guest lecturer at an NYU um, uh, business school uh, class. And, uh, you know, that room had probably 45, 50 students in it that were all, you know, really excited about coming up with the next, um, you know, best idea for Uber or Airbnb and make make a billion dollars. And you know, I asked the any, I asked the class if uh, you know who in the room had actually been in the data center, and I think it was one hand out of fifty that that uh, that that got raised. And you know, so they really don't understand, you know, the investment that's being made um, to 
an infrastructure to enable you know these great new businesses that are um, that are really changing the game in people's lives. So there's a bit of a awareness from that perspective. More people are aware of what we do. Hopefully that translates into um, uh, business uh, in, in the future. Uh, well, hats off again to your efforts there, and I'd love to dig in just a little bit on what you know the topic du jour. Uh, obviously, over the last few months, if not weeks. Is this whole COVID nineteen you know pandemic uh, that has without question changed the way the world is operating and it's continuing every hour if not every minute evolving into something different? Um, what has Flexential done in light of that to address you know people's concerns about contracting this virus and you know I'm sure that must have made some you've had to rethink how you operate as a business day to day. And so to that end, like what has Flexential done to address um, in light of, of what's going on today? Yeah, obviously uh, incredibly uh, dynamic times that we're all, that we're all living in right now. Um, what, you know, I guess one of the first things that I, I remind folks is that, um, you know, data centers, um, you know, in a lot of ways are built for these types of situations. You know, they're built to withstand, natural disasters um that uh that you know can impact um um you know mission critical infrastructure that's that's running businesses because we you know we manage around hurricanes and earthquakes and um utility outages um every every year and ensure that our you know our environments are up 100% of the time and so um obviously this is a pandemic uh, pandemic is different but you know we we have the policies and the procedures um you know in place to to uh ensure that not only our facilities are hardened but um you know uh, all of the all of the resources around the uh, those environments are and 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 the related supply chains are hardened that those environments you know can can stand up um through um, through these types of events for however long they need to. And so, you know, I guess just point number one is that, you know, that's that's what we're here to do. Um, so as it relates to specific activities, though, you know, I, I think by, by design our facilities are hardened, but in, 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 this, pan, in this pandemic we want to ensure that our, that our uh, people that manage those environments are as, um, uh, as safe and sound as, as they need to be to ensure that, uh, you know, there's no, no – um, uh, no, no issues in terms of maintaining and, and managing uh, the infrastructure, and so that was really job job number one. Is was just uh, immediately um, uh, uh, enacting those um, you know those those procedures to ensure that we had um, safe, secure environments and and redundancy in terms of. Uh, of of people resources that may or may not need to be available to the extent that uh you know to the extent that um you know covid made its way into in, into one of our environments which uh, I'm glad to say it, it has not and so um you know at this juncture as more and more um um localities if you will went into the shelter in place mode uh, I'd say we're 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 managing our fleet in, in the same way, so we, we have we have limited the ability for um, uh, customer traffic to um, to just be business as usual in the environments. We still uh, obviously will allow access to our for our customers for you know mission critical moves, ads, and changes, or you know we encourage them to um, 
to make those requests remotely and have us do more of what they um, may have um, in a business as usual environment done themselves. And so, you know, the whole goal was to just limit foot traffic so there's no risk of exposure um, in our environments to to our people or to to other customers. And so, you know, that was really um, uh, the primary focus over the course of the last uh, couple weeks was to, um, you know, ensure uh, the resiliency, if you will, uh, of the environments. You know, uh, outside the environments, obviously, we have corporate resources. And so, um, you know, our employee base is is uh is working from home and um and 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 we'll do so until such time that we uh can see a um um you know uh, a safer side to to what we're all going through right now and 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 glad to say that's all you know that's all uh, functioning well the other thing that we're doing is just you know working with our customers for what me might be needs that they have that were unexpected so um as you can imagine everybody's trying to figure out how they um, how they augment their 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 own networking capabilities to manage to this working working from home dynamic, and so um, you know we've we've enabled a way for our customers to get it um, those types of resources really kind of on demand, so that they can dial those up and dial those down through this relatively um, you know turbulent time where you know you don't exactly you don't you don't have a um, uh, a history of managing through an event like this to know how much you're going to need when. And so, you know, providing flexibility to our customers in terms of their ability to consume resources that would otherwise be, you know, something that they'd need to sign up for for X number of years, um, I think is, is is the best way for us to, to, to help our customers out. And um, so we're, we're staying focused with what our customers' needs are and uh, ensuring they're as dynamic as they need to be through this time period. But, um, you know, the other thing I think in, just in general that, um, um, you know, I think this will raise awareness around the needs to ensure that you have the, uh, the, the, the redundancies in place for, you know, uh, unfortunately the next time something like this might happen. It was interesting enough. I was on a, a virtual happy hour yesterday with about 50 some odd, uh, infrastructure po- folks, uh, uh, Christian Koch with Packet Fabric and Jabez and Philbert from Structure Research helped host all this. Uh, and we had a variety of different topics, but it was interesting listening to people from all over the world, whether it was the UK or Singapore, talking to how they're affected and how the industry is being affected in their localized market. Uh, and one of the most interesting comments that came out of it for me uh, was how how a lot of the data centers in Asia Pac are best suited to handle this type of a situation because they the way they manage tours and the way they manage entrance and uh, into those facilities is a lot stricter than it is here. Whereas, uh, whereas here, you know, I can call up a provider um, and schedule a tour for a client or a partner uh, within 24 hours uh, and pretty lax, you know, I don't want to say lackadaisical, uh, but go through the process, um, you know, clearly have to have uh, closed toed shoes and, and whatnot. Um, but in order to do that, if I was in Japan, Tokyo, or if I was in um, Hong Kong, it's a much different process. And uh, in order to have people even come through the data center, it takes a lot more time and you have to wear booties and uh, you can't really even access a lot of the different areas. Whereas in the data center tours here, people want to show them off. They want to show them the critical infrastructure, the battery backup rooms. They want to show them the meet me rooms, but you can't 
you can't do that in a lot of those other facilities. And in fact, in a lot of those facilities in Asia Pac, if you have remote hands and eyes work, they prefer that you use the on-staff uh, engineering resources within that data center uh, versus you as a client coming in and doing that work yourself, which I, I find very interesting. And the, the U.S. companies uh, have seen a massive increase in the workload from the data center operations teams that are 24-7, 365 in those facilities because customers just don't want to go into the data center anymore. And so they're starting to rely and lean on those resources on a regular basis. And I'm, I'm sure you're probably seeing something similar. Yeah, no, we definitely are. And, uh, and in some respects, it's, uh, I think it's better overall, right? Um, you know, it's our core competency is, is managing um, these environments and the infrastructure within these environments. And I can appreciate why certain customers want to do the moves, add some changes themselves. But, you know, we're certainly capable of it. We do it for thousands of customers in multiple geographies. And so in some respects, you'd hope they'd, um, they'd, they, under normal circumstances, would do that more. But there has definitely been a, a jump in that. Um, uh, now, in particular, as people, you know, have their own complexities with regards to um, – moving around. And so, um, you know, I, I would expect that to continue for, for a while longer here. You know, one, one of the other conversations we had was trying to look into the crystal ball of the future as to how everything that's going on is going to affect our industry. And I think it's obviously testament to the, the network and the data centers that have remained uh, alive and well during all of this, as we've seen globally, I think it's something like 35 to 40% increase in total network traffic. Uh, and obviously it varies by type of company. So like gaming companies, for example, are also seeing massive spikes, you know, all of the Zoom and related uh, UCAS, uh, Unified Communication as a Service companies are seeing massive jumps in, um, in demand. You know, I think Zoom had a somewhere between a 25 and 30 X, like 30 X growth over a handful of weeks, if not two months, um, which in no way, shape or form would have been possible if it wasn't for cloud infrastructure and wasn't for the scalability and flexibility of providers such as, as Flexential. Um, but if you had a crystal ball, how do you think all this is going to affect our space over the next you know, coming months? And, Let's just assume, God willing, in a month or two from now, we're through the hysteria and really focused on how do we kickstart and restart the economy and restart our day-to-day -day life and not live in this pandemic fear of everyone locked down in their houses. Um, what, what's going to come out of all this for, for our space? Yeah, well, I, I guess I, uh, I have to look back at history a bit to... to um to have some context for what I think uh, will happen. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, through my uh, telex and other experiences, um, have uh, have uh, been through, obviously not something like this, but, you know, situations that were, you know, had the ability that either fairly materially impacted the economy or, or, or our customer base. And so there was obviously the, the, um, the financial crisis, um, that uh that uh, i experienced it at telex and and it was uh i'd say our business and i i think i'm speaking for um you know our our all of our all of our peers um you know is 
is generally pretty resilient through these time periods. Obviously, you know, our 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 our, our physical facilities themselves are are built to withstand trauma, if you will. But um, the the the, the bit, our business is is to is to maintain and and um, and service you know IT infrastructure that effectively is at the core of you know the the operations of of all of our customers. And so you know it's it's they can't. Uh, those are not environments unless they're shuttering their entire business that they you know that they have the ability to to um, to to kind of turn off until uh, until things change and so you know I think just in terms of during the during the crises themselves um, you know the business is is resilient because it's kind of the last thing that needs to be shut off but but I, I do think that these uh, types of events and you know I lived through. Um, uh, Hurricane Sandy at, at at Telex, which was fairly traumatic um, for the Eastern Seaboard, but you know these these events themselves really raise awareness for um, for you know either process or operational or facility weaknesses that um, that companies may have uh, or um, disaster recovery plans that they you know quite frankly may not have or think they have but never tested um, or think they have and realize aren't uh, as robust enough and so you know the awareness that 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 results from uh, these types of events ultimately leads to to growth in our industry um, uh, because you know there are uh, you know there are we are that is our core competency and we're as experts at, at delivering those capability sets in times like these and so you know as awareness grows then consumption grows and and in general i think um uh it's a it's a, it's a positive for our industry you know exactly how this one's going to play out is is obviously tough to uh tough tough to know um you know i think um uh, you know my hope is that we're you know i'd say back to, Back in business, um, uh, if you will, uh, across the board in in the not too distant future, um, you know, you have some people talking May, some people talking June. I think there's going to be a period of of re- of reboot, if you will, where companies that have effectively um, turned themselves off, or or you know, retail chains that have closed, you know, hospitals that have clinics, you know, thousands of clinics that can't stay open, um, you know, need to, you know, need to get you know, back in back in their own game, and that's just going to take time for, you know, for people to know that number one, they're open, and that they're staffed, and that, um, uh, and that that people um, are actually leaving their homes to consume whatever whatever that business is providing. So I think there's, you know, um, uh, unfortunately, going to be a period of uh, of reboot. But um, you know, I do think uh, when everything's Back to back to the new normal, uh, whatever that's going to be. I think um, uh, I think our our business will have shown well, and um, and that uh, people will appreciate what we what we do, um, uh, and the peace of mind that we deliver even more. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I there's not a day that's gone by over the last couple of weeks, especially where I'm not thankful that I'm working in the industry that I am <laughs> uh, for a lot of the reasons that, that you've mentioned and just the critical nature of what we do on a day-to-day basis to keep the economy running, I think is overlooked. We're kind of like the silent plumbing and plumbers, right? Of, yep. of what's going on. So I guess some of the last few questions I have for you uh, have to do with going back to some of the lessons learned, but can you recall uh, some 
piece of knowledge or information or uh, maybe an experience you had that was very formative in your early years as a executive working in, I guess, corporate America, but uh, not necessarily the data center industry uh, that you've kept with you and that you kind of refer back to and kind of keep as a guidepost uh, in your career. Um, is there anything that, that comes to mind to that perspective or th- to that extent? Yeah, well, I mean, it's going to sound, um, there's a couple things, um, and it's going to sound relatively basic, but, you know, sometimes the it's the basic things that uh, that are the most meaningful in, in for the long term. You know, I... I often say uh, to my folks internally that, you know, let's stay focused on making, you know, good business decisions and, and not let them be influenced by, uh, by, uh, the, by urgency or, um, or ego or, you know, other, other politics or, or what have you, because, you know, it's ultimate uh, good business decisions, if appropriately, if appropriately um, diligence are going to lead to are going to lead to great results uh, i think cumulatively they they always do and so you know we just got to make sure that we're making uh, the right decisions for the right reasons um you know day day in and day out um the other thing that that i guess i've learned over time is um is that it's important that you stay focused on on on, on building you know strategic value for the long term and that you know there are decisions that we that we make today to invest in a new facility, you know, a year from now are not going to be, you know, necessarily generating, you know, EBITDA to, you know, to embolden, you know, um, any kind of capital raising or sale process or anything like that. But ultimately, you know, that that investment decision is um, is going to, you know, bolster the capacity of the business and allow us to to sustain a growth trajectory for for the long term. So, you know, uh, just you know, recognize that, um, that, you know, that building long-term strategic value, um, is arguably more important than, you know, um, than a, you know, a quick win with a, with a quick payoff, because ultimately when, when people value businesses, they're valuing it for its, for its long-term sustainability or annuity, if you will. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I try to focus, um, on that when we're making, you know, material, um, material investment decisions. And, and, uh, you know, also, I guess, lastly, just, you know, drive quality into everything that you do. Uh, again, if you're, if you're, um, uh, if you're, uh, doing something that's not going to stand the test of time, then it's, and then it's going to show accordingly. And, um, you want to, uh, if you're going to be investing material resource, um, either in money or people's time, you know, make sure that it's, it's oriented to having, you know, high, high quality deliverable that, uh, you know, the, or, uh, deliverable or result. I think that's great knowledge for anybody and everybody in all walks of life. Um, you know, the, oh, was it, it seems like forever ago, God, seems like absolutely like years ago, but in January I was at CES in Vegas, uh, the consumer electronics show and was just blown away. And I try to go every three or four years. Cause if you go every year, the incremental changes that you see at that show really aren't all that impressive. But if you take three, four years off and come back, it's pretty interesting to see just how far along things have come. And one of those light bulbs for me was just how advanced um, robotics has become over the last few years and that uh, how robotics is going to take over a lot of the um, repetitive jobs in, in the marketplace. 
uh, here in the near future uh, and has already in, in some areas of the world. But I'm curious if you have come across anything similar over the last few months that really made you stop and say, holy crap, uh, I can't believe this is, this is alive here and today and functional today. You know, is there anything mind-blowing that you've seen over the last few weeks or months that made you pause and, and think? Well, I mean, you know, as you were talking about robotics, I just uh, made me think about uh, AI and, you know, all the things that are being enabled as a result of that, which I think, you know, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, an event um, like we're all living through today, I think we'll, you know, we'll focus more investment on on, on the ability to, to do things with things like ro- robotics or, or things that are, you know, fueled by our uh, AI, which ultimately AI supports our business because, because it requires, you know, fairly sophisticated um, uh, um, um, compute environments that, you know, that, um, that we that we enable um, and that we you know we continue to invest in the density of our of our environments to to enable even higher performance um, compute capabilities. So, you know, I'd say um, that that uh, I had a similar sort of um, um, you know perspective on 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 how that's going to change the game in the future. You know, I think just what's I think been a bit of an awakening for 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 all of us is just you know how fragile. Our economy is uh, as a result of uh, of people. <laughs> now, what I mean by that is just foot traffic. You know, as we as we look at our you know customer base, you know, uh, we're 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 looking at assessing risk by um, you know not by size of company, but by impact of of, uh, of foot traffic, um, because that's obviously what's impairing fairly massive businesses um, uh, across the world right now, which. Uh, which you know who are you know facing um you know 90% reduction in revenues in the hospitality um area because nobody's no there's no foot traffic um and uh and um you know i guess until something like this happens on such a scaled basis you you, you know you can understand when kind of you know cer- certain people decide not to necessarily take vacations because there's economic um you know uh Tension, if you will, but you know, to have uh, a whole industry impacted to the tune of ninety percent because um, because of uh, um, you know pe- uh, because of this type of an event is just, to be honest, it's been mind blowing. So um, you know, hopefully, it has the same effect on the inverse when you know people um, people get back to back to work and back to life, normal life. Yeah, one of the the comments. Uh that came out of yesterday as well that was unanimous was at least in our space the those businesses that have been uh impacted drastically by by what's going on is kind of measured out or or uh e- uh equaled out by the growth in all the others so the the streaming services and the gaming services and uh all the virtual Work services uh, growth is almost equal to the um, subtraction of uh, capacity and, and needs from from everyone else. And I believe it was uh, someone from Digirality that said that over the last two months they've seen um, a net increase in power consumption of around one percent uh, just in the last two months. Which you might look at and say, "Well, that's not that much," but when you look at it aggregate over every customer that they have, that's actually pretty interesting. And 
significant uh, to occur just over that short period of time. But it is, you know, it, these are unprecedented times. And um, I appreciate you so much for taking the time to, to talk with me here today. I know this is going to be valuable intel and, and knowledge for those listening. Uh, for those who want to get a hold of you in some capacity uh, and in however you, you'd like for people to learn more about uh, Fluxential, what what can they do or should they do to to get a hold of you? Yeah, sure. And, um, you know, I, I, I always say um, uh, I like to, you know, try and be a, a resource for folks that are um, either lo- lo- looking to learn more about us as an industry or, you know, more specifically are looking uh Toward you know how our capability set might support um, you know their 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 business if you will so anyway um, people if you're anybody in your audience you know hopefully it's everybody in your audience is using LinkedIn um, I'm pretty available and responsive there um, and then happy to send my email address which is Chris Downey at flexcentral.com and um, uh, so uh, you know feel free to reach out and I'd happy to happy to help in any way. Awesome. And the very last question I have for you, which I ask all of my uh, my guests, is do you love data centers? Absolutely. I've loved them for a long time. <laughs> I'll lo- love them for a long time to come. So, absolutely. Well, thank you again, Chris. I appreciate it. And I uh, hope you stay safe and uh, have a very uh, great day and are able to love and appreciate everyone around you, both family, friends, and uh, those you work with even more than prior to the insanity over the last few weeks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Ron. Thanks for having me. And I, I, I extend the same wishes to you and your folks you work with and, and everybody in your audience. I appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you. Peace. Bye-bye. So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, You can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.